Hey folks, welcome to this very special mashup edition of Peak Prosperity and the Dark Horse podcast. This is my good friend Chris Martinson. I should say Dr. Chris Martinson. And for those of you who don't know me, I am Dr. Brett Weinstein. This is an experiment that we are running here. We are streaming to both of our channels. Chris and I have come to know each other uh, over recent months, and it is one of those delightful discoveries. I won't speak for him, but I will say for me that to find someone else who has arrived in a similar position, having traveled a very different path, is an extremely rewarding and fascinating experience. Chris and I have talked a great deal, uh, not in public, and the last time we did we were left with the strong impression that probably people would benefit from hearing what two people who see a similar picture surrounding the collapse of the public health narrative and the coming storm, what we sound like to each other as we attempt to make sense of the world and figure out what it is we're supposed to do now. So uh, I don't know if I should be welcoming you, Chris, or what, since we're both on each other's channel, but uh, it's good to see you, buddy. Yep. In fact, uh, one knows a lot more about uh, how certain conclusions are when you have people with good tools arriving um, from various different paths. So anyway, this is something we have both experienced, and I agree. It's very reassuring to discover that you're out there. Apparently it is good now. Excellent. All oh, right. Okay. Well, Chris... This puts us in a terribly <laughs> awkward situation because you said uh, a bunch of uh, lovely and incredibly cogent things, and uh, maybe repeating them would be a good idea. Well, what what I was, I'd be happy to repeat them. Um, it's fabulous to be here with you, and I know that you and I have had some incredibly good conversations that I found gratifying, heartwarming, reassuring. Because, as you mentioned, you and I have walked very different paths, and and we've arrived at a similar sort of set of conclusions. And that means a lot to me because if a hundred people walk a single path and get somewhere, that's not as relevant to me as if three people using different tools, different things, different approaches come and, and have that consilience of coming towards that point that, that makes sense. So I found in this whole COVID experience, there aren't that many people who've managed to keep their head about them, be able to shift with the data as it's been uh, un unfolding to not only understand what's happening with COVID itself, but but maybe to understand that there's something else working here. And so, yeah, our conversations have been fantastic. And I'm really excited to be bringing this out to more people because I think it's a valuable conversation to be had in public. It is a very valuable conversation. I know that you and I are also both hoping um, that, I don't know, I don't want to describe it as a team, but the people who are listening to each of our channels and coming to make sense of the world through them will recognize that they are a great deal stronger than they had understood because there are so many more of us. And the fact that your work does not show up frequently inside the circles that I travel is a fascinating fact to me. I can't imagine why a perspective that is as similar wouldn't be ever present. And, you know, so I've had to tune into you actively. I'm hoping that my my listeners will realize what that implies. I mean, the most obvious thing is that they should most certainly go and uh, they should follow you on Twitter. They should find your YouTube channel and they should discover that there's a large community of people who has a similar perspective that was built with uh, 
different tools. And, you know, that's that couldn't possibly be better news. So I hope they will I will, hope they will do that. And I hope your listeners will come find me and come find my listeners and that that uh, that big bump in capacity uh, will be something we benefit from uh, from here on out. This is my theme for 2022. It's bringing bringing these different groups together as much as possible. And I, I don't have a good explanation for why you're you, we, we, we have sort of like bumped around in different territory without more overlap. Is this is it just that's just how it is? Is is there some active sort of sheepdogging by the big tech media to keep people away from each other? Um, I mean, I certainly have some evidence that that I I don't have the same easy free run in social media that, say, the Kardashians do, but I, I don't want to ascribe it all to that. So I don't know. It's kind of been a it's an interesting phenomenon. Yep. Um, it's a head scratcher. Um, all right. So let's just say what we're shooting for here is to kind of carve out a, a new mode where um, we talk between our two different uh, but aligned perspectives and we get people on board with what that sounds like and hash out differences that we have. That's the most productive thing that we can do if we mm-hmm. can spot things that we haven't come to agreement on. Uh, if this works, I think at some level, it, it is uh, your your channel being peak prosperity, mine being dark horse, it will be an exercise in dark prosperity. And if we screw it up, I feel certain it will be peak horse. Um, <laughs> give it, well, let's go with dark prosperity. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm definitely, definitely shooting <laughs> so we for the dark prosperity. <laughs> All right. So um, let's uh, let's get to some of the heart of the matter here, so people know really what the topic of discussion is. I think we are in almost undeniably suddenly a new phase with respect to COVID. Right? Omicron threw a curveball to the uh, the stewards of our perspective, and they fumbled it. All right, I've just mixed sports metaphors, but let's go with it. Um, they did not switch gears and recognize that even if they were inclined to continue deploying the exact same prescription that they had been on for Delta and the previous variants, that the public was going to detect that as an error because Omicron certainly demands a different approach. Um, so the fact that the approach that they had deployed over Delta and the other variants made no sense whatsoever was suddenly validated by the fact that they made even less sense against Omicron. And this has forced a lot of pivoting. It has forced a lot of acknowledgement of things that you and I and our friends have been saying for many months. Um, and it has effectively caused the narrative that they had so carefully constructed to begin to collapse. And we now see things like mandates being withdrawn around the world. We see it being done at the level of corporations that say we're no longer going to enforce this on our employees. We see nations backing away from them. And that's all very good news. But again, I think a lot of people who have been paying attention and maybe have paid a high price for being on the unpopular side of this discussion are thinking, well, thank God it's finally over. And my sense is something is over, but something else is about to begin. And I think people need to see it clearly so it doesn't catch them off guard. Um, Do you see something similar? Unfortunately, I do. You know, I, I guess my background where I started with this um, kind of a long origin story, but it really began with with the first foray into Iraq. Um, and that was back in 2002, I guess. 
so there was all these ideas of weapons of mass destruction and and um I get, well, I guess that's the second one. The first one was a poppy bush, but I mean, this was this was that that piece under George W. And I had gone into because I'm this kind of guy. I went into the data and I found out this doesn't make sense. You know, they're, they're, they don't they couldn't possibly have what Colin Powell was saying they had. And so um, I, I went out and, and organized a protest march in in Mystic, Connecticut, where I was living at the time, a- and. I quit, and we had, I think, 17 million people around the world rose up and said, let's not do this. Let's not go to war. And, and the agenda just went right along anyway, as if people didn't matter, as if voices didn't matter, as if, you know, none of it mattered. And so, so I'm see, I see the same strains today, right? The, the, it's the same playbook, in essence, where there's a, a, an agenda and it's out of step with the narrative. So the narrative, Omicron just shredded the COVID narrative, just broke it right beautifully just smashed it to smithereens um and just yesterday i think it was rochelle walensky of the cdc was saying well we what we really need to do is pivot and be sure that everybody understands that everybody needs a booster right i i I don't know how to make sense of of that um because what she's doing is she's clinging to an agenda that's clearly broken and a narrative that was really failing all on its own anyway, even without Omicron, but it's really, really failing under Omicron. And so it speaks to this idea of what's next that you brought up, which is that my experience watching the Iraq war unfold was that these people, when they prove to be wrong, they never they never go, oops, our bad. You know, where was the, we got the mission accomplished. We never got the, hey, we're so sorry. <laughs> it turns out there never were weapons of mass destruction. Here's some consequences for the people who, architected that bald face lie, right? That didn't happen. Instead, we just rolled from one thing to the next. So, so I, I agree with you. This Once this agenda narrative is over, I think what we have to be alert for is the next one that they're going to pop out. They. And is, is there a single they in this story? I don't really know. But I mean, we always trip over this sort of thing because there clearly is a they but the they has different has components, right? There's clearly, you know, you can see in the emails that there was a they orchestrating the lab leak cover up, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it involved many of the names who were prominent in the the phony public uh, face that was put forward. There's also a they that involves lots of surrogates in the media, many of whom probably have no idea what they're doing uh, and are just, you know, ambitious in the in the negative sense of that term where they are uh, vying to curry favor with power and to get ahead. And then there is a vast brigade of useful idiots. And I would say in Walensky's case, I have the sense that she does not know where she is and what she is doing. She is a true believer in something or someone. And, uh, it's breathtaking to watch her hold on as the narrative crumbles around her. Um, it's clearly, it's not a good look. I got to say, it does not look like a wise person trying to scramble for higher ground. It looks like a person uh, who was dispensable to whatever the they is. Yeah, I would agree. I, I don't, I don't put her up on the top shelf of they <laughs> <laughs> She's, she's, she, she's clearly a, a, a useful uh, front for it, but not even all that that good at her job. So I actually cringe and I feel bad for her from time to time because I think uh, it's clear she's way out of her depth and doesn't. I don't know that she really understands the game that she's a pawn in, so she plays it badly um, and and with not a lot of 
sophistication. Uh, you know, the next shelf up, certainly we've got Fauci. He's, he's a very skilled player of whatever the game is. Um, but even there, I'm not sure that we're looking at the, the true face of the they in this story. It, it feels the horsepower that was involved to get this whole narrative off the ground was breathtaking to me. Uh, I'm a very uh, deep student of this. When I watched every single European country, with the exception of Sweden, which is, is an odd story here, I watched Israel, I watched Canada, I watched uh, New Zealand, Canada, United States, all fall into lockstep around this one narrative. That's power, right? Even even as India was like, nah, no thanks, we'll do it kind of different for most of it. Not Kerala, but most of India was like, yeah, we got this. Bangladesh, Africa, Indonesia, like everybody was kind of doing it a little different with stunning success in some of those locales. And we just kept going um, across a lot of different cultures. I don't think of Europe as one. So, well... Let me, uh, let me, this is not something I've talked about with anybody. It's just sort of a thought that was running around in my head. There's some sort of narrative, clearly not organic, that was constructed that its purpose was to lead people to a particular set of behaviors and beliefs. Now that many people, I think, have very clearly mistakenly understood it to be noble lies, but I don't believe it could be. I don't believe it could possibly be as far off the mark as it is if it was a mistake. But what I see is a kind of proximity effect. It's like Fauci is a megaphone broadcasting this message. And the closer you are to Fauci, the more distorted your civilization has uh, has been around COVID. So it's like we are the epicenter of confusion, and Europe is very thoroughly confused, right? But as you get farther from Fauci, you begin to see experiments in reason, and you see them in the oddest places. You do see them in Africa. You see them in Indonesia. You see them in Japan, right? You do see them in Mexico. You see them in South America. And that is interesting, because in, in some sense, what it means is whatever this game is, it's hurting us worst because the they is closest to us. It has the best access to our minds and it has unhooked reason most effectively right here, right? Um, and that is an amazing fact, right? Like once again, we're going to end up with worse access. I mean, just the simple fact that medications that we know work have been made scarce and in other parts of the world, it was hard to make them scarce and less important that they be made scarce. And so people actually have them, right? That is an amazing inversion of the usual. This is the opposite of privilege is what it is. Yeah, it's a, right. Go uh, ahead. Yeah. No, that's a great point. So, um, you know, I, I've uh, I just tested positive for COVID a few days ago. Um, have, I've had some symptoms. I've had this conversation with people who said, so if it gets bad, are you going to the hospital? I'm like, no, <laughs> no. Like, you want to talk about an inversion of privilege? I'm actually, first time in my life, legit scared to go to the hospital because I checked. My local hospital is all about remdesivir and ventilators. They're, they are they are stuck in something that the, the most third world nation you could find wouldn't dream of doing because they have access to a better route of they, they know the data all says that is the wrong thing to do and it's still being done. And plus, if I get pulled into that system, 
my partner Evie can't come with me. There's nobody there to advocate for me. You get you get sucked into this place where you have no rights anymore, not even the right to determine what treatments you want. It's it's bizarre, and I'm not sure if it's always been that way or if COVID made it worse or something new arose. But that's that's it's legitimate. Brett, this is a weird place for me to be. I would not go to the hospital. It'd be my last right. resort. I, I have, and this is one of these places, we've never had this conversation. I have exactly the same sense is that at this moment, I mean, this is a weird thing to say, right? The hospital has a tremendous number of very important tools it can deploy on your behalf. But I actually think we are worse off in that context. I am probably in a better position if I come down, let's say it's COVID, right? And I get a bad case and I'm in jeopardy. I am probably better off with Pierre Corey on the phone telling me what I should do than a hospital full of tools and experts going by the narrative. And that's a frightening place to have landed. That is not a good sign. That is a sign things are desperately off. And I mean, it's also, you know, I, I thought a lot because various people, I guess most recently, it's been... Um, Wow, I'm blanking on his name, which is probably a good idea. Howard Stern, right? Howard Stern was mouthing off about how uh, the unvaccinated should not be granted access to hospitals. And, you know, there was a part of me that months ago was thinking, all right, I'll take that deal, right? If I am making a decision to forego the vaccine, I am willing to to endure the consequences. But then I realized something. You know what? I'm not in a generous mood about this point. And the reason is, but you robbed me of all of the tools that I would use. If you want to make a deal with me that says, look, you can do whatever you want, but you can't make use of our hospital if our hospital is advising you to take a vaccine that you want. That's a deal I would make. But then I get access to all of the other stuff, right? I get access to the things that have been deployed around the world that we know work, the things that doctors have figured out how to deploy, that they are saving patients at an amazing rate. I get access to those things. Yeah, I won't go to the hospital for COVID for sure. Now, what you and I are talking about is actually probably I don't want to go to the hospital anyway because they might give me remdesivir, right? That's counterproductive. So... Yeah. And actually, actually, uh, we, I screwed up. It was me entirely. Um, if people don't know who you are, where your expertise comes from, um, could you tell them a little bit about your background? Sure. Um, my, I, I got a PhD in path from the department of pathology where the subspecialty was toxicology. Actually, I, I went into a toxicology program, but they don't have a department of toxicology at Duke. So it's housed under pathology. So my PhD from Duke is in pathology. Uh, and the way that program works is the first two years is with all the medical students. Uh, and then years three and four, they put the white coats and the stethoscopes on and I went into the lab. So I was doing surgical pathology, histology, things like that. So uh, got a standard pathology training and then did a couple of years of postdoc, uh, very basic cell biological work in the department of cell biology. After that, um, neurotoxicology is where I started to focus down. So a lot of time behind a microscope looking at, you know, live cells, which is the most magic thing ever. We could have a conversation about that sometime. Then uh, after that experience, I went and got a, they have a one-year MBA program at Cornell. So I got an MBA and then I went off and worked. First, first job out of that was actually at Pfizer in Department of Corporate Finance down in Groton, Connecticut. 
then one thing led to another. Uh, later, I was uh, vice president of a company called SAIC, doing basically body shopping, um, uh, consulting back into the pharma business I just left. And then after that, uh, I left and, and started a blog. Um, so nobody should ask me for career <laughs> advice. I'm just wrong guy. <laughs> but that blog was my mission. And I was talking about um, the housing bubble at that point in time. I had just come across peak oil as a concept. I started to work things and I really took a full three-year sabbatical and created something called the Crash Course, which is now 28 video chapters that connect economy, energy, environment, sort of at a systems level, uh, very high level. So I'm not an expert in any one of those, but I know enough about each to have this synthesized view that says we need to look at all of this in context if we want to have a chance of understanding where the puck is going to be in this story. Um, so yeah, where so the puck is it? So I guess... <laughs> Unfortunately, it's on some really thin <laughs> ice right now. Yeah. So, all right, this is great. And this also gives a window into why uh, you and I find so much analogy between our perspectives, which is um, being a generalist is different and doing synthesis is different. And one of the things that has absolutely unhooked reason from most of the intelligentsia is that they actually think that there is a method to go to a place called the literature and look at something they call the data and derive from it a description of what is taking place. And the answer is, wouldn't it be lovely if that were true, but it isn't, right? This is a complex dynamic phenomenon that is being analyzed by a corrupt and in many ways feeble academic structure. And what it comes up with doesn't add up. So what you need is a toolkit that allows you to borrow from various different disciplines, borrow from various different uh, vantage points to be able to put together the best explanation for the phenomena that you can be pretty certain are actually real, right? That's a whole different game than sitting down at, you know, some data and drawing a conclusion. It's not that it doesn't involve data, but you have to understand how to weight it. You have to understand what experiment was actually run and therefore what the data actually imply. And this is not something that people are in general used to. So most people have punted. And what they've done is they've said, here's a voice that sounds good to me. I'm just going to go with what they said, right? And if it's Eric, Eric Topol, you're cooked, right? You're just cooked. You just signed up for nonsense. And in any case... Very interesting that you have these specialties. I'm especially delighted to hear things like toxicology and pathology in there, right? These are um, windows in that very few people have, right? Especially toxicology. You, you lived through the madness surrounding claims about ivermectin as a toxicologist who was in a position to say what the reality there was. Um, so, you know, it's, it's an amazing toolkit and the generalist approach is absolutely crushing the the narrow specialist. What do the data say approach um, in this pandemic? You know, we are the sum of our trainings to a point. I mean, I was born a certain way. I think that's part of it. But but the pathology training, you know, it's all statistics. Somebody says, hey, my uncle smokes four packs a day. Is he going to get lung cancer? And, you know, the answer is maybe. Right. And here's some odds. And, and so we, we were very statistically trained. But more than that. When you have a slice of, of tissue and you're trying to determine the degree of dysplasia or, or you know, the, the abnormal changes in cells, like is it fully cancerous? There's a whole sweep and series of changes and it's, it's very subjective. If you're, I mean, I know they've got machines that are starting to hone in on it, getting it better. But when I was there, 
Like you had to really use your best interpretation and there were associated changes. It wasn't just the cells themselves that you're looking at. It was the ones around them. It, it took a lot of, it's sort of educated guesswork as it were. And the, and the more, more experience you have with it, the better you get. But what I learned from it was that there's no, there's no right or wrong. There's no crisp line ever that says cancerous, not cancerous. You know, there's this whole gradation and then there's a different, even if it is cancerous, there's a whole gradation of how it's going to present and how malignant it's going to be and all of that. So it's, I think through all of that and, and my background as a scientist, you know, I was in the biological sciences. You can run in about six months, you can go from the what's known to the edge of what's known in any particular branch of totally. biology and start doing really cool right, research. Right at the frontier. Right? And there are very few people at the frontier who have the right toolkit for it. But I, I want to correct you. I'm going to correct you in a way that I feel certain you're going to agree with, right? You said it's educated guesswork. Yep. And I know that that calls up exactly the wrong image in people's minds, because what it really is, is something like a process, an iterated process of self-educating guesswork, right? The point is, somebody who does this well walks into a situation in which they know they are not expert, and they begin to try to make sense of patterns that they can detect. And the point is, okay, here's what I think I see. Here's what would be true if I am correct. And then I'm going to go look, and I'm going to do an honest job of saying, well, did I get it? And the point is, to the extent that you keep predicting things, then your model's pretty good. At the point your model stops predicting things, it isn't. And then the question is, well, what would have to be true for my model to be failing in this case? Oh, now I see it. And so, you know, every cancer is its own phenomenon, as, as you know better than I do. A, a forest is a chaotic environment right? In order to make sense of any such phenomenon, you have to have this toolkit in which the point is you know that you walk in with near total ignorance. And the way you walk out with something much better than the near total ignorance that you walked in with is an iterated process of educating yourself. And if you have a taste for it, you know, it's a tremendous amount of fun. Um, if you don't know where to start, then it's like, well, I don't like any of this chaos. Maybe I'll go look at a paper and it will tell me what to think, you know, and that's just not a functional mode. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with that. And, um, and to get back to, to the, uh, I think something we share is, is, um, I, I have, I have, I read a lot of books. I have a special shelf where those, the only books on that shelf, there's something they all share. And that is they changed how I thought, right? I just, I know at the minute I read, it, it doesn't have to be the whole book in the middle of a perfect paragraph, but it fundamentally changed how I saw the world. That's what I value most highly. I love having my mind changed and opened. Uh, and so that's just an attribute. I don't know if I was born with it or if it was a nurture thing. I don't know. But it's certainly a, <laughs> it's like I love, I loved what I was able to learn through COVID. I was offended by the people who were trying to shut down that open inquiry. And I was really, I loved all the people I found who were the open, you know, explorers out there. You're among them. And Pierre Corey, you mentioned a name. But we found out in this whole thing, like, who was legit, honestly curious and open-minded? And that is amazing to me because I trust you now. I trust Pierre. I have about 20 people sort of in that bucket. Some of them I've never met. I was supposed to meet them this weekend in DC, but COVID. Um, but I trust them more than people I've, I've known my whole life in other circumstances. So it's, it's been a, that's been a good thing. Oh, it's been a great thing, right? No, I mean, it, it, it's, 
more than ample co uh, compensation for the tragedy of all of the people that you wanted to be good at this who turned out to be terrible and then got vicious, right? So anyway, the, yeah. all of the wonderful people that we have discovered who are actually have a taste for this, are good at it, are, you know, open to being wrong and fixing their model because that's the point. Um, that's been a delightful discovery. And I, I have described it to my viewers as an upgrade, a very painful upgrade process that happens anytime you run into a, a situation this charged yeah. because people will disappoint you right and left. And then suddenly you'll learn about people you didn't know existed who are actually courageous and highly capable. And it's like, okay, well, yeah, I'll make a tr that trade anytime, right? Disappoint me, go away. Mm -hmm. And then I meet someone and I say, well, all right, I've just, you know, I've just picked up this person who was much more capable and frankly, somebody that if you land in a foxhole with them, you don't have to worry that they're going to panic. Um, so, yeah. Well, are we yeah. in a foxhole? If, <laughs> we're in a modern foxhole. Yeah. I, I, I absolutely, I absolutely believe this and most people just aren't up to it. Um, mm-hmm. It's a pretty big uh, stretch, right? I mean, it's it's to really. I wonder if I if I even have my arms fully around exactly what's going on. But you know, so again, from my background as a, a person who's a biologist, fundamentally looking at whole system biology, meaning at least at this whole cell level, um, is is where a lot of my research was done. I understand intimately the role of energy and resources, and you know, you either. Remember to plate your cells out with appropriate levels of medium and glucose or you didn't, you know, and if you didn't, they would all ball up and get very simple and very unhappy looking. And, and I understand where we are as a species in, in this story. And so that's a frame I bring to this and I'm open to all the other ones, too. But my frame says we're at a really critical moment in our species history. I think people are detecting that on many different levels. But, of course, you can't even open up the newspaper or online news source without finding out there's something not quite right with microplastics and where'd the fish go and what's up with the insects. And uh, can we really suck this aquifer down at 6% a year when it takes 10,000 years to recharge and on and on and on. Right. And, and from that COVID then becomes the backdrop, which says, look, we couldn't even discuss ivermectin without like losing the plot line. How are we going to manage disappearing, um, ecosystem services that we haven't even properly mapped yet, let alone begun to appreciate. Oh, this, is, this is such a beautiful point, right? If you are going to be bewildered by a campaign as transparent as the, I don't know, the great horse dewormer gunshot victim yes. debacle, Bar if you're going to be fooled by that, <laughs> you know, you're not going to get the question of pesticides and its implication, right? You're not going to be able to navigate the question of how does... Um, you know, a mRNA uh, lipid nanoparticle vaccine compared to a live attenuated virus, you know, you just don't have the tools, right? You're easily fooled. And it's one thing to know that and to say, hey, look, I'm out. It's another thing to think you do get it. And um, we've been, uh, I don't know, we've been quite buffeted by many, many people who pretended to have good tools and just just didn't. But I, I want to switch us switch gears a little bit here. And we have been so far talking kind of generally about where we're going. Mm -hmm. I, you said you, you don't you're not you don't quite have your arms around where we are. And I would say actually, I think that this is sort of uh, the primary entrance requirement to the adult discussion, 
right? If you're really paying attention to what's going on, you you know that you don't know where we are, right? There are possibilities. You may have a sense that it's this and not that. You can say certain things aren't likely to be true. But I don't know anybody, right? The most informed people in the world who are not on the inside don't know what this is about and therefore don't know what it is that will be uh, protected and obscured in this phase where we go from the public health narrative collapsing on the public health authorities to whatever they're going to do in the great scramble to come. And I fear that because people have the sort of sense of relief that, you know, I mean, I don't know what you've seen. Uh, you're you're out east. You're in uh, Massachusetts. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. I'm out here in Oregon. We're living physically very different uh, existences among people who aren't connected. What I'm watching is Omicron completely overwhelmed even the false impression that control was possible. And it caused everybody to kind of surrender and they just stopped taking COVID seriously. And that was interesting. And they, frankly, with Omicron, it's probably the right approach for many reasons, because A, you're not going to control it with masks, right? You're not going to control it with masks. Boosters make less than no sense, given the evidence of uh, the vaccinated being so very vulnerable to contracting and transmitting Omicron. Um, But in any case, people just sort of, I think they breathed a sigh of relief and moved on. And the problem is we are dealing with a self-inflicted wound. COVID appears to be a self-inflicted wound of unprecedented scale, right? Two years of turning the entire world upside down over a virus that appears to have been enhanced and then escaped. Now, that is an amazing error to have made, and the costs will never be fully understood, right? The costs are absolutely gigantic. So it stands to reason that our top priority ought to be figuring out exactly what happened and building the best protections we can to make sure nothing like this ever happens again, because frankly, as bad and unprecedented as it was, it could have been worse. So then we are left with the question of, well, what should happen now? And my, increasingly, I am preoccupied with the way that those who did this are going to escape being uh, properly um, revealed. And the reforms that are necessary will be avoided Because, of course, this was, whatever its fundamental nature, this was um, the mother of all opportunities for certain people, right? The amount of wealth that was generated on the back of COVID, the amount of power that was concentrated, the amount of progress that uh, tyrants have made in getting us to surrender our rights and getting used to the idea that that's a normal thing to do, right? These were spectacular changes. And... They are now going to do everything in their power to avoid us understanding what happened so that they can do it again. And we must stop that. But that involves recognizing where we are. This is not the end. It might be the end of COVID. It might be that another variant pops up 
and returns us to some place or takes us someplace new. Those are live possibilities. You can tell me if you see uh, reasons to think they aren't. Um, but at the level of what happens to society, which frankly, I think you'll agree is much more dangerous than what happens to us as a result of this particular virus, we are still in grave jeopardy and the game is only just beginning. Uh, thank you. I love having this conversation. I'm, I've been so um, it was May of 2020 when I put out a, a first video. Where I was like, this thing kind of looks like it came from a lab. Right. And I, I was using the genetic information on it, in particular, the PRA furin cleavage site. I was like, that's that's weird. And I couldn't find any other nearby viruses that that had that particular sequence. You know, so it, it had to have gotten it from somewhere. And so there wasn't a, a, a molecular or biological or evolutionary explanation for it that made sense so you weigh the evidence and i was like pretty sure this came from a lab right so i was a conspiracy theorist for a full year in the press and then somehow that story changed one day all of a sudden it was okay to talk about it and that was interesting watching the narrative control but i agree with you completely that if we don't not only find out how it arose and how it got to escape not only find the people who were responsible for that and find out if they broke any laws or rules, right? If we don't do that, they've just learned, oh, we can get away with this. And when people have no consequences and they learn they can get away with something, they'll do it again, particularly if they get to make trillions of dollars and, you know, secure vast new rights and powers and things like that. So I think it's really troubling that my culture in the United States, that our press is, yeah, they sort of weekly sort of look at this lab leak thing, but they're not really on it. It's like they don't have an interest in finding out why or how that might have happened. And, and I think that's an error, a big error, because it'll just happen again. That's not that's not a that's that's about that's not a prediction in the sense that I'm trying to tell you something in the future that's uncertain. That's like saying if I let go of a hammer, it's going to fall to the ground. I don't think it's an it's error. <laughs> um, and I don't want to describe it in overly deliberate terms, because I think a lot of this functions subconsciously that people detect that there is something desired from them and they do it and it rewards them and they don't exactly know why why they were invited to do it but the the whole idea that the you know the horses are out of the barn why are we so concerned with the origin yes it's kind of interesting it would be nice if we knew someday what happened but what does it change this is very wrong on two fronts i mean for one thing if it did come from a lab, and it seems almost certain that it did, we have a right to know the protocols that generated it, which might well tell us something useful about how to address it. And the idea that anybody has the right to say, nah, you won't find anything interesting there is um, preposterous. But what I really think is happening is that a lot of people who weren't ahead and who didn't suffer the stigma of saying, hey, this looks like a lab leak. It's not making me happy to say it, but it looks like one. People who didn't do that and people who said terrible things about folks like us who did are signaling to power that effectively they're advertising a willingness to embrace amnesty for the lab leak. All right, I'm not going to go after this. And the point is, I see a negotiation unfolding in the world at the moment. And the negotiation mm -hmm. involves people, you know, the public is going to want an explanation of how the public health authorities got it so wrong. And so there's a scramble to fill that need 
But the point is, the people who got this so wrong are connected to the most powerful forces in the world. And so they get some say in who they have to confess to and how much they have to confess. And what they want to do is confess enough that it is satisfying and not so much that anything changes. And I, I really think that this is what happens next, right? They are bargaining with the middle ground. Those who got it wrong are going to move in the direction of right. But the whole idea is to save the elite rent seekers who, at the very least, took merciless advantage of the situation from the reckoning that would be natural and from the reforms that would plug the leak. So, yeah, I, the lab leak is a good model because we won that battle for the most part early. And we can say what happened, right? There was a mad scramble amongst people who had gotten lab leak wrong to become the new voices of reason who acknowledged that there was a lab leak and were able to point to indications that they may have left that possibility open before. But anything was better than going to the people who said, actually, you have no idea how high the chances are and how much evidence there is. And the fact that there is exactly zero evidence pointing in the other direction. And, you know, you ought to be thinking about this. So, yeah, I, I, I see a kind of de facto negotiation, and I wish there was some way to describe it so that people did not hear it as the allegation of a smoke-filled room in which people are actually talking, because that's not the kind of negotiation it is, right? It's an as-if negotiation. You know, there's, um, I agree with that. I agree with that. There's, so, so there was a, 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 a chart in a book that showed, um, and this was by Ralph Barrick, and, and it showed, this is pre-COVID, but it showed all the things that we, we humans had been doing with um, coronaviruses. And so the first time that we'd taken a chimera and, and taken a piece off of one and put it in and made it more infective in an animal model was 1998. And um, it, it, there might have been earlier stuff, but that's the first publication on this chart. And then there's like all these seminal things people are doing, including by 2002, Ralph Barrick had figured out how to do uh, the noceum inserts so that you could actually build an entire viral construct without anybody being able to detect that it had been through a lab. He got a patent on that. It was 2003 when SARS broke out. So prior to, to SARS, we never had a pandemic coronavirus. Prior to humans monkeying around trying to make them more infectious, we'd never had one. So I, I, my, my questioning about this whole thing goes back a long way now. Um, and... So you then you watch the MERS thing come out and you watch this thing come out, uh, SARS-CoV-2. It's clearly been manipulated. And, uh, you know, I have a whole story about Omicron, too, which looks even more <laughs> manipulated. It's pretty obvious. So I think we have to have that conversation, though, because I don't know that we it's pretty clear that whether people meant well, they had a white hat sort of a reason. They thought that this was going to advance knowledge so that we could learn things that would be important. I think what's missing in that is the hubris is has overshadowed this idea that even 30,000 tiny strings of letters, which we'll call the RNA code of this particular virus, is too complicated for us to understand or manage. Like it just did wildly complex things inside the human body when it got in there. I don't know if you saw this, Brett, but there was a study that showed that not only is this 38, you know, kilobits of information come forward and enter a cell and do all this stuff, but it has little proteins that it shuttles into the nucleus to turn certain genes on and off. It's just so ridiculously complex, but there are people who think we can control that and learn from that and, and fiddle with that. 
Um, so in, in essence, what we're dealing with with SARS-CoV-2 now is humans as a species, we're having to adjust to a virus that didn't go through the normal, call it normal um, pathways. So it got a big sudden jump in evolution and that's not a normal condition. So we're going to, we're going to learn some things about this. And I don't think we're over yet in dis- in learning some things. There might be things we discover in three, four, five years, like real long haul COVID. We don't know. We, we, we don't know. And that's what bothers me is that these people who did this, Brett, they, they still are operating with that sort of hubris and impunity that says, well, even if it escaped, what w- we can do better next time. But I don't, I think we're at Jeff Goldblum's character in Jurassic Park, you know? <laughs> yeah, or, or the fly. <laughs> it's like, just because you can, just because you can do something doesn't mean well, you should. So right? this, is a, this is a battle that uh, I'm, I'm going to avoid ranting, but this is a battle that um, has been going on forever and that animated me when I was a graduate student, right? Because the the lab that I was in was actually a lab of effectively refugees from the rest of the biology department. These are people who understood the power of selection. And so, you know, the funny thing is I graduated having come from the the um, the entomology lab. I'm not an entomologist. Hmm. I studied bats. And most of the people in that lab under Dick Alexander didn't study bugs. They studied dolphins and birds and every other thing, right? And the reason was that that was the place where people who understood the power of selection had gathered because it wasn't all that hospitable anywhere else in the department, right? The ecologists, by and large, didn't get it, right? The the, the cellular molecular people didn't get it. And so the point mm-hmm. is, look, you don't, you believe in the evolutionary story in the textbook, which is a feeble co- cartoon compared to the real thing, right? The idea that you think you know anything about the virus that you've created when what you've really done is put something on the foothill of some mountain range you don't know anything about. And what you do know is that it's got a program for climbing, right? It's going to become something. It's not under your control. The question is, what niche did you just bring it to? And we can. there's a perfectly good example of this. Hawaii is a tropical uh, landmass, right? It's a tropical archipelago. You would expect high biological diversity because tropical habitats tend to have high biological diversity, but it doesn't because it's so remote, right? It's remote, and that means things don't get to Hawaii. And so what's there are things that were very good at crossing extremely long, inhospitable distances, right? So it's an interesting habitat, lots of unique things there, but it's not high diversity. You can take almost any mainland creature there that finds it climatically hospitable and the thing will take off because you've solved the hard problem of getting to Hawaii by taking it there on an airplane Mm -hmm. and now it's a better competitor than all the things that were adapted for getting to a place like Hawaii and persisting there so the point is we've introduced creatures we've introduced you know mongoose for example you can't get rid of them right what you've just done is solved an evolutionary problem that evolution couldn't solve and then you've let evolution take it from there and This is a recipe for disaster. The idea that you're going to create something in a lab and think that you're its master, come on. This is natural selection. It built you, right? 
this is the most powerful process for, you know, upending plans that could conceivably exist. And you're just playing with fire. And what's more, you're not playing with fire in the way that people used to play with fire, where they would blow themselves up. You're talking about the whole world. Somebody made an error. In fact, in this case, people were wise enough to see it coming, and they tried to ban this research, and Anthony Fauci decided to override them, right? That mm -hmm. error, Anthony Fauci overriding a gain-of-function research ban, very likely resulted in a particular viral particle escaping off a particular lab bench into a particular human being and then COVID-19, right? That is the, the capacity of selection to take a tiny error, right? Literally a microscopic error and turn it into a global catastrophe. That's the power of the process you're fucking with. And if you don't respect it, you know, we're going to be facing this again and again because our power is only growing with respect to starting these things, to setting them in motion. And, uh, you know, oh, it's such a terrible, terrible failure of wisdom. I completely agree. So, yeah, rant on. I know I, I'm, 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 the older I get, the less I know, you know, and, and so I loved, I loved the, um, evolution and Darwinism that I was taught in grad school. And about five years out, I realized it was complete <laughs> junk. You know, I'd been, I'd been trained that Lamarck was wrong and Darwin won and this guy was an idiot and this guy was super smart. And then I came across this study that I had to read and check and recheck and check and it blew my mind. It was, um, they had been trying to look at upregulation of, of nasal tissue, um, the receptors. And so what they were doing was they took male mice and they spritzed cherry scent into the cage and they shocked them at the same time. And as these stories often go, one day there was a sharp graduate student who noted that they forgot to they, they forgot to shock them, but they spritzed the cherry scent. And the, the, the mouse all acted with this PTSD, right, because they had been habituated to associate the, the cherry scent with a, a painful shock. Well, what they found was that the pups from the offspring of those of those male mice, when they bred them, would display that PTSD behavior upon exposure to the cherry scent, no shock. So that, and then that persisted through multiple generations. So it means that our DNA has a way of taking experiences, saying that sucked. Let me help pass that on, coding it up and giving it to our offspring. Right? That's not what I learned in evolution, right? That means our DNA is in communication with the world. Now we have this epigenetic and there's offspring of, of Auschwitz survivors who have more anxiety. We've got the Dutch studies of the babies that were, that were fasted while they were uh, in utero gaining weight afterwards. We understand now that our DNA is not this static thing. It's busy in a call and response dynamical process with the world. The complexity of that is not something I can even begin to think we have our arms oh, around. We don't. And what's more, so I do think the epigenetic revolution is uh, one of the um, the reasons for hope in what is otherwise a desert of recent progress in evolutionary thinking. But the problem is it was implied by many things we knew very well back when I was in college, right? We didn't know what we were dealing with in terms of the mechanisms. But the point is development actually implies all of these mechanisms. The very fact that you can take a genome and it can create hundreds of different cell types that are well organized into a coordinated organism and that the pattern involves those cells being able to count, you know, their progress from the zygote 
and being able to respond as we know that they can to different environmental cues during that process. So for example, you know, a tadpole that ends up in a puddle that has other things, other meat to eat develops one kind of dentition, a tadpole of the same type that is uh, left in a puddle that only has vegetable matter develops different dentition. This implies a system in which the genes are able to read the environment and alter their own expression, right? It's all there. And the problem is if you took back in the 80s a what-do-the-data-say approach, and the point is, well, the data don't yet say what the epigenetic landscape is capable of, but the point is, yes, but it has to be. There's no way this could fail to exist. And so you could either anticipate it and say, I don't know what that layer looks like, but there's a missing layer. And, you know, people, I agree with what you said, except for Darwin did get it right. And what I mean by this is Darwin was a generalist. He was in some cases, a few cases, overly specific. But in general, he did a good job of laying out the logic by which selection would function without being so specific that he is upended by history. And so in some sense, it's what happened later. The discovery of DNA and its its uh, nature as the fundamental genetic uh, storehouse caused a narrowing of focus where what happened is Darwin said something very general. He didn't say there was going to be one mechanism right? But then at the point that we had this very compelling mechanism, it was like, ah, that's Darwin's mechanism. And no one stopped to think maybe it's one of Darwin's mechanisms. And so my sense is more and better mm. Darwinism is the solution to the flaws of modern Darwinism. <laughs> I love it. Oh, thanks, Ted. Yeah, no, I guess it, you know, it had to have been the overlay because I guess what I'm really re reacting to is the overlay of saying, well, the way Darwin's evolution must work is there must be this random mutation it confers a set of, of attributes and some of those are selected for and some are selected against, but, but those never made sense to me. Cause I'm like, so duck ducklings, there was a random mutation where a duckling would freeze when a certain shape went overhead. And, and so that was the one that didn't get picked off. So it survived. Like it didn't make sense. I think now it, it makes more sense to me that the duckling is like, Oh man, that sucked. Let me pass that on. Right. That there's some there's some rat, more rapid, more elegant way of, of communicating. Uh, but at any rate, I, I, I got, I came up through molecular biology at a time when it was, here's DNA. It's in a string, stop codons, start, stop, start codons, you know, and, uh, it codes out. And if you've got this mutation, you have sickle cell anemia, right? It's like, it was very dry. Now I understand it's a little more, a little more. Yeah, I mean, the problem <laughs> is that we write the, the bio textbook in the same voice that we write the chemistry textbook. And the fact is we're a lot farther along in chemistry. We know more of what there is to know, and we're really at the very beginning with biology. Yeah. And so what I tend to say is the, the story in the biology textbook about random mutations being selected, most of them being bad or neutral, the occasional one being good, that story isn't false. It's true. But that's the original thing that set the ball in motion. We're looking at selection 10.0 where selection has done amazing things to enhance its own capacity, right? And so if you use an understanding of evolution 1.0 and you try to understand things that are unfolding in evolution 10.0 space, you're just not going to get anywhere, right? This is a very powerful process. And I mean, even the tools that we're using to have this discussion, these are tools selection built 
to enhance the capacity of its own products to do jobs that the genes themselves couldn't do, right? We, you know, people will swear to you as they're training you to think about evolution. Evolution cannot look forward. Really? Well, can it build creatures that can look forward? Because I think we are those creatures. And if evolution can build creatures that look forward on its behalf, is it really fair to teach people that evolution can't look forward? Because the truth is not exactly that. It's more misleading than it is helpful. So we're constantly stuck in that bind. And what you're saying, which I, of course, completely agree with, is that that stupid hubris that should have made somebody look foolish in a lab meeting actually resulted in us crashing the functional structures of civilization over what at best was, you know, an error, a lab error, right? That, that is an unacceptable cost-benefit ratio for such experiments, right? We should not all be suffering from some, uh, you know, naive person's uh, attempt to do something on their lab bench that just so happened to, you know, walk out of the lab on their shoe or in their lung. Yeah. Yeah. It, and then it, um, so th the thing I've been struggling with COVID wise, um, is, is the degree to which then that error was seized upon really quickly by some people who seemed almost quite ready for it. And we know they were, right? They were doing these event 201 trainings If people don't know what that is. They, they, they would bring together a bunch of interested parties who would talk about how would we manage a, a viral outbreak across the globe, right? And, and so who do they bring in that room? Well, you're not invited. I'm not invited. I don't think any scientists are in there. It's like J&J &J executives and people from the CIA, every major news media outlet, Bill and Belinda Gates Foundation, um, you know, et cetera. And, and, and they bring them in. And when they ran those events, what was startling to me, Brett was watching that they, they never, I don't, I, I watched a whole thing and I didn't see them ever go, here's how we limit the loss of human life. They're like, you know, there's this bad narrative that might get out and people are going to be spreading misinformation and they had sub teams and here's how we would control the narrative. And it was really just all about how do we control this thing? But back to our point, when you unleash a virus on the world like this, it is fundamentally an uncontrollable thing. It's going to do things. It's going to get out and do what it's going to do. It's going to virus is going to virus. Right. And, and it's done that it's made new variants. It's, it's, uh, it taught us that putting a leaky vaccine into a pandemic was a really bad idea. Like gear Vandenbosch said it would be, um, and on and on and on. And, and we got, goodness that Omicron came along. We could have a different conversation about that. But what's astonishing to me is how many people were gleefully anticipating this exact sort of an outbreak so that they could do the kinds of things they wanted to do, like COVID passports and shutting down sectors of the economy. Right. Very and weird. getting us, uh, took getting us to, to think that it was in our interest to surrender our rights, that the key to accessing our rights was surrendering them, right? These kinds of upside down bits of logic. And, um, you know, I, I fear that one of the facets of the game that is about to unfold is interrupting the natural process of learning that people and societies go through. What do you mean? What I mean is the lessons here are fairly obvious. I mean, for one thing, if this, you know, it, let's imagine that this happened at a much smaller scale or that something analogous happened at a much smaller scale, you know, a town, right? And people had been very, very wrong, and they had been very, very convincing, and a disaster of one size had been made much worse through uh, their inaccuracy. 
right? There would be a discussion and the discussion would say, well, I don't know how you got it so wrong. And frankly, I don't know why you listen. I listen to you, but I do know that you're not the expert on this anymore, right? Your advice caused us to harm ourselves. You are now the last person we will go to for advice on these kinds of situations, right? And those people that we went after, that we tried to, to silence because we thought that what they were doing, you told us that what those people were saying was dangerous to us and that we needed to silence them and we needed to punish them, right? You were wrong. And in fact, it turned out they were right. So believe it or not, I'm going to them next. I'd like to know what they see. Doesn't make them right, but it does mean that they have a toolkit that has proven out. We are going to be prevented from learning that lesson. We are going to be prevented from understanding, you know, effectively, as much as possible, we'll be driven to a muddle that does not produce the proper reaction to correct the process. So the, exactly the thing that we were talking about earlier that makes a biologist smarter, where you walk into a system you know nothing about, you take your best shot, you see what worked, what didn't, and your model that you carry around in your mind gets improved by, uh, you know, by just simply actually the, the human desire to figure it out, right? The human desire to figure it out says, damn, I thought that prediction was going to be right. Why wasn't it? You know, I want to be right next time, whatever it is. That process would upgrade our thinking, but that's bad business. This happened for a reason. You and I don't know what it is. Let's assume that it started with a well-intentioned but crazy research uh, project that got out of hand, collapsed uh, many of the functional structures of the world, and that the right thing to do now is to figure out, holy crap, what did we do wrong? What's what's wrong in our granting process? What What's wrong in our governmental agencies? What's wrong in the kinds of projects that, that exist? What does dual use mean? Should there be this dual use argument, right? You can study how to cure diseases with dangerous viruses as long as they also have some utility as weapons. What? None of this makes any sense. So um, I don't know whether there's any stopping the, uh, the process that is about to recapture the narrative and steer it into some um, uh, ineffectual state. But I do think that this is something that we have to focus on because everything is riding on this. I mean, you and I both have children, right? They're going to have to have a planet that functions and the power to cause catastrophes like this is going to grow. So our wisdom at how to prevent them from happening needs to as well. Even if, you know, this just freezes our knowledge in place, that's a disaster. So I don't know, we, we've, we've got to get better at this. And we've got to get good at recognizing that there's a spectrum of possibilities about what actually happened here, right? The story that you described there, I think, is probably at least partially true, where people, when they saw this thing emerge, they had plans already in place to allow them to capitalize on it, right? To use it for things they wanted to do anyway, right? For making tyrannical incursions into our rights, right? They had that on their agenda and they needed a way to do it. And suddenly, oh, COVID, that's it. All right, let's do that. Um, so we need to we need to recognize the possibilities. And I think a good healthy dose of agnosticism about what has taken place is important because it may be actually that there's more to this than we know. <laughs>